God damn it, Walter. You fucking asshole. Dude, I'm sorry. I the fucking travesty with you, man. Dude, I'm sorry. It was an accident. What was that shit about Vietnam? Dude, I'm sorry. What the fuck does anything have to do with Vietnam? From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. everyone and welcome to the unenthusiastic critic i'm michael mcdonough i write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com with me today operating without any decent restraint totally beyond the pale of any acceptable human conduct is my lovely wife nakia also known as the unenthusiastic critic hello on this week's episode we're sitting down for nakia's first viewing of francis ford coppola's apocalypse now which was released 40 years ago this week For the people who were around during the war, of course, they watched it on television. Mm -hmm. It was on the news every night. For those of us who came afterwards or who, like me, were too young to really remember the war itself, I think Apocalypse Now is one of the key cinematic texts from which we drew our perception of the war, Mm -hmm. which we learned about what the war was like, along with stuff like Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter, Hal Ashby's Coming Home, Oliver Stone's Platoon, Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. But you haven't seen any of those movies, right? No. Okay. (laughs) So I'm just curious about where your concept of the Vietnam War came from. So my narrative about Vietnam probably came as part of my learning about the civil rights movements okay um and just sort of larger sort of social justice movements so it was i'm sure we learned about it at school i have no recollection of what we were taught in school see i don't i took a class in college mm-hmm. on the war but before that i don't think we learned anything about the vietnam war when I did first learn about it, it was through Martin Luther King Jr. and his speech, I think it's called like Beyond Vietnam or something mm-hmm. like that, where it was making this connection between sort of civil rights movement at home and in, in the States to what he essentially saw as an act of colonialism mm-hmm. in Vietnam. And this idea that we were spending all of this money on war, but we were not you know, committing those resources to the sort of economic and social uplift of of folks back in the States. Right. So that was sort of the beginning of my developing a story around Vietnam. It was always twinned with this larger international oppression of black and brown people. And then there was, of course, Muhammad Ali's conscientious objection where he didn't want to serve in Vietnam Mm -hmm. because it went against his beliefs as a black Muslim. But again, it was also part of this larger narrative about, well, I think it was like nobody in Vietnam ever called me the N-word. So why would I be going over to fight your, what was essentially the white man's war? And then in pop culture, I think the only movie that I've seen, at least that I can remember offhand, is um, Dead Presidents, which was about this group of young black men returning from Vietnam and sort of finding themselves not welcomed as heroes um, and with very little sort of prospects in terms of jobs and all these other things and sort of trying to reintegrate yourself back into civilian life. And so you had... You know, people making choices out of desperation and you had drug use and all these other sort of things that ripple effects that sort of followed folks outside of um, after they came back from Mm -hmm. Vietnam. So. All right. And how have you never seen Apocalypse Now? Easily. (laughs) (laughs) It has 
literally never come up in my life. How has it never come up? It just hasn't come up. What do you know about it, if anything? It's about Vietnam. Mm-hmm. That's about it. That's it? That's- you have no impressions of it? No? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're not big on war movies. We've talked, I think when we did uh, Saving Private Ryan, Mm -hmm. we talked about how you're not a big fan of war movies. Mm -hmm. Why why is that? I don't know. I'm just never in the mood to sit down and watch a film about war. And depending on the film, I'm not interested in revisionist history. Yeah, there's nothing about it that appeals to me, really. Hmm. Okay, so this might not go that well this week. Is then. this a pro-America Vietnam War? No, no, no I wouldn't say that. Uh, we can. I think that's one of the things we can talk about after we watch the movie. Okay. Okay, so let's let's talk a little background here. So the director is Francis Ford Coppola. You're familiar with Coppola from? Well, actually, I don't. I don't know how much you remember from our episode on The Godfather. Because I was drunk. You were a little, uh, little, little tipsy mm-hmm. for that episode. Yeah, I remember that Frito sucks. Released in 1979, again, it's the 40-year anniversary, and in fact, a recut version of this film is going to be in theaters this week as this episode drops. Coppola has tinkered with this movie several times over the years. There's, uh, I think in 2001, he put out Apocalypse Now Redux, which was the movie with about an hour of added footage, three and a half hours long. I think the new one coming out is... A little shorter than that. I think it's not as much added footage. I don't know. He keeps tinkering with it. I like the original cut. Lucky for you, that's what we're watching. I mean, if you really want to watch the the, the longer version, we can do that. No, thank you. I didn't think so. And it was written by Coppola and screenwriter John Milius, loosely based on Joseph Conrad's novella, Heart of Darkness, which, have you read that? I have not. Okay. So that, the novella is about... It's not about Vietnam. It's about Africa. It's about colonization. It's ivory traders, not soldiers. Mm. But basically, Milius had the idea to take the basic premise of that and and transfer it to the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Um, and Milius, let's talk about him for a second, just because you do not know this, but you actually have a, a certain special connection to, to John Milius. Do I? You do, uh, because your favorite movie is The Big Lebowski. <laughs> And John Milius is the model for John Goodman's character, Walter, in that movie. The gun-toting, Vietnam-obsessed, right-wing, slightly unhinged <laughs> guy. Um, if you watch film of Milius, you realize that Goodman is doing a pretty spot-on impersonation of him in that movie. That's frightening that that's a real person that exists. Uh, including the fact that, reportedly, John Milius once pulled a gun on a studio executive. <laughs> Like Smokey. <laughs> exactly. This like- isn't Nam Smokey. There are rules. <laughs> Last week we talked about Easy Rider, which was one of the films that launched the the new Hollywood era. This American new wave, which saw uh, directors being given new freedom and power within the Hollywood system. Mm-hmm. And I think, though none of this was planned, I think it's appropriate that we're following that with Apocalypse Now, which... I would argue is one of the last films of that era and sort of serves as an example of both the best and the worst of the the auteur era of Hollywood. I think it's a bold and daring and stunning piece of work, but I also think it's, as we will discuss, just this insane, over-the-top example of directorial hubris. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that's what we got towards the end of that little renaissance period in the 70s in Hollywood is, you know, it started out that all of these guys were the young, scrappy underdogs coming in, making what were then experimental movies with not a lot of money. And then by the end of that period, they'd all become rich and they'd all had a lot of huge successes and they were getting bigger and bigger budgets and they were getting more and more ambitious. And they started overreaching Mm -hmm. and getting overconfident and producing a lot of expensive bombs. I mean, Apocalypse Now was not a bomb, but Coppola's next two movies bombed. Scorsese bombed with New York, New York. Spielberg bombed with 1941. William Friedkin bombed with Sorcerer. Like, almost all of these guys had bombs towards the end of the decade or into the early 80s. Probably the most famous example being Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate, which you want to talk, you know, the... The problem with the auteur theory, this is the movie that went dramatically over budget and behind schedule, partially because he insisted on shooting only during magic hour of every day, mm-hmm. the one hour before sunset. You love magic Every hour. day. Yeah. <laughs> Which is ridiculous. <laughs> Was it all the cocaine? This is also, it's amazing how often that comes up when you read the stories of these movies, including the one we're talking about this week. This production's problems have become the stuff of legend. There was, in fact, a award-winning documentary called Hearts of Darkness, A Filmmaker's Apocalypse that documented the making of this movie and pretty much made it seem about as harrowing and foolhardy an ordeal as the Vietnam War itself was. That's okay. <laughs> Hyperbolic, but okay. Yeah, there is no shortage of hyperbole surrounding all of this. At the Cannes Film Festival, when Apocalypse Now premiered at the press conference, Coppola said, My film is not about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. (laughs) It's what it was really like. We were in the jungle. There were too many of us. We had access to too much money, too much equipment. And little by little, we went insane. Okay. That's disrespectful, but okay. (laughs) Whatever do you mean? I mean... Lots of Vietnamese citizens died in Vietnam, so uh-huh. I think that that wins out over your little movie. Not making the movie was just every bit as every bit as terrible an ordeal mm-hmm. as the Vietnam War. Except they all got to go home back to their lovely manses in Hollywood. Uh, and we will talk. There are a million stories. I highly recommend that documentary. It's fascinating. I. I considered trying to watch it with this movie for the podcast, but I figured that was too much. But I do recommend people seek it out because it's really interesting. But I think most of those stories are probably, we'll, we'll talk about them after we watch the movie. So what, do you, what are you expecting from this film? What are, you, what are your impressions of this movie? What am I expecting? Um, I don't know. I think this will be sort of a continuation of a theme that has sort of followed us over the course of this little experiment, which is a new sort of definition of the American hero. Um, And maybe this one is slightly more nuanced and complicated uh, than earlier ones. But yeah, I don't, I'm not quite sure what to expect. What do you mean by the American hero thing? Um, Well, I mean, I think we've watched a couple of war films now that if not outright jingoistic and sort of building this idea of the great American hero in Mm. war didn't really challenge our ideas of American history or America's role in conflicts over time. So I would hope this one would be slightly different, but I don't know. Okay. I'll be interested to see what you think, because I think, I think there are ways in which it fairly honorably explores the complexities of this clusterfuck that we got into in Southeast Asia. And then I think in other ways, it's super problematic. 
dramatic and does not do a good job of representing that. So mm-hmm. I, w- I will actually be interested to see what you think. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, let's go watch it, I guess. Okay. This is the end. Beautiful friend. I've been a soldier since I was 19. And I still haven't learned how to wait for it. I wanted a mission for my sins. They gave me one. Nobody had ever gone on a mission like it before. And when it was over, I'd never want another one. Your mission is to proceed up the Nung River in a Navy patrol boat. Pick up Colonel Kurtz's path at New Mung Ba. When you find the colonel, infiltrate his team by whatever means available and terminate the colonel's command. Terminate. Terminate with extreme prejudice. My orders say I'm not supposed to know where I'm taking this boat, so I don't. But one look at you and I know it's going to be hot. Pick your boat up and put it down like a baby right where you want it. This is the first of the ninth air calf, son. We're coming low out of the rising sun. And about a mile out, we'll put on the music. Scares the hell out of the slopes. My boys Come in the morning. Smells like victory. And we're back. During the break, Nikia and I watched Apocalypse Now. And Nikia, as we discussed, the shooting of this film was something of a bloated nightmare. Mm-hmm. They shot it in the Philippines. It was supposed to be a four-month shoot. It ended up being about a year and a half that they were slogging through the rain in, in the Philippines. It was supposed to be around a 12 or $13 million movie. It ended up being about a 30 to $40 million movie. People went crazy, did a lot of drugs, had heart attacks, died, apparently. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a clusterfuck. But it produced a film that is now hugely respected. The first rounds of reviews were not actually great, or they were mixed. Vincent Canby in the New York Times called it a profoundly anticlimactic intellectual muddle. Hmm. Frank Rich in Time Magazine said, Not so much an epic account of a grueling war as an incongruous, extravagant monument to artistic self-defeat. The Vietnam War was a tragedy. Apocalypse Now is but this decade's most extraordinary Hollywood folly. But at the other end of the spectrum, you had people like Roger Ebert who called it a masterpiece. Ebert said, years and years from now, when Coppola's budget and his problems have long been forgotten, Apocalypse will stand, I think, as a grand and grave and insanely inspired gesture of filmmaking, of moments that are operatic in their style and scope, and of other moments so silent we can almost hear the director thinking to himself. 
And writing about it years later in his great movie series, Ebert said Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now is one of the great films of all time. It shames modern Hollywood's timidity. To watch it is to feel yourself lifted up to the heights where the cinema can take you, but so rarely does. Nakia, what did you think of Apocalypse Now? Um, I was not lifted up to heights. No? No. Hmm. Um, and so I'm just going to say just at the top that I'm obviously wrong. Not necessarily. Well, I mean, it seems to be, like, obviously the early reviews were mixed, but it seems to be that we have, as a culture, decided that Apocalypse Now is a great artistic achievement. And I I saw moments of that. Mm-hmm. I did not feel that through the entirety of the film. Yeah, I just didn't, this did not feel like a sort of cinematic milestone to me. Okay. I just didn't get that. But again, I fully admit that I'm probably wrong on that. Well, you may not be. I mean... Well, no, I'm sure people much, much... Let us recall that you and I are the only two people in the world who do not think uh, There Will Be Blood is the greatest film of the 21st century. And obviously we're... But again... And I'm not wrong. I'm not wrong about that. That was another one was like, there's about... And I think I said this last last week about um, Easy Rider. It was just like, there was 10 minutes and There Will Be Blood. I was like, that's actually a really beautiful, interesting film. Uh And I think it's like when he's in the little well by himself or whatever. Um, (laughs) Which is the first two minutes of the movie. Exactly, the first two minutes of the movie. I think it's really interesting. And so there were moments in this film where I was like, oh, that's interesting, and it's shot beautifully, and it's saying something, and then the rest of it, you know, Martin Sheen's sort of laconic, morose voiceover. I'm actually not a big fan of the voiceover. Droned on a little bit. And it also just felt, it almost felt like a caricature of... You know, those sort of old P.I. movies, like, mm-hmm. she yeah, walked into not. the office right. and I felt blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, like, it was a, it's a very, it was, it was very stylized. And I think yeah. it just, it sort of took me out a little bit of the experience of the film. And that's basically all the film. <laughs> I'm not a fan of narration in general. Not, I think there I think are very few films where it would not be improved if you just took the narration yeah. out. Yeah. And I think... I think this movie, to me, is one of those movies. Mm-hmm. I under- There are a few places where I think it's necessary to follow the story. Right. Like, the backstory on Kurtz. Mm-hmm. We get a lot of that in the narration, yes. and mm-hmm. that's probably... It was definitely necessary to get it in somehow. Yes. Uh, but I agree with you about the narration. I don't, I don't think the narration yeah. works. And then there's the whole... I mean, it's funny you read that quote at the top about how Coppola said that this was... The film was Vietnam. Right. And it's like, it, it was Vietnam with no Vietnamese people mm-hmm. then. Um, because the only... They are, uh, you know, as a people, they are sort of both... And, and this sort of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of like this sort of through line with the civil rights movement. The way that we globally view black and brown people, right? It's like, you know, black folks here feel both hyper visible and invisible at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it felt that way with the Vietnamese in this film. They were hyper visible in that all the dead bodies <laughs> were the Vietnamese. Like they were sort of set pieces. Literally. Literally set pieces. And so hyper visible in that way, in a very violent, almost decorative way that felt vulgar. And then also invisible in that they had no narrative. They had no identity. They had, like, it wasn't. Yeah. So, and I I think this is going to be one of those movies where we're just going to be jumping all over the place because I think it's hard to talk about it any other way. Mm -hmm. So let me just jump in there and sort of confirm your impression of that. A couple interesting tidbits on the sort of production design. The bodies, at one point, they found a guy who apparently supplied cadavers to medical schools and said, we need some bodies. Okay. 
Now, that to me is problematic enough in the first place that you're going to put real bodies yeah. on your film set. Yeah. Then they found out, after he had been supplying them with bodies, that he had literally just been robbing graves to oh, get more and more bodies to horrifying. sprinkle around this set. Okay. So they found that out, and then they got rid of him. And then what they did was they just used real people as the bodies, mm-hmm. which is better. There's footage in the documentary of them like, the severed heads mm-hmm. that are lying around Kurtz's compound. Mm-hmm. Those are people that they just buried up to their necks oh, and had God. them sit there in the sun all oh. day on on the set pretending to be severed heads. Yeah. So your oh. impression of that, I think there was probably a grotesque amount of exploitation yeah. of the local Philippine people going on in the making of this movie, Not even sure. more than the documentary captures. Mm-hmm. But then to your larger point, I think it's absolutely right. And I think it's, this is not a movie about the Vietnam War. It's definitely not a movie about Vietnam. No. It's a movie about the American perception. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't challenge. In fact, it just expands on the view of Charlie, quote unquote, as this monstrous demonic figure. Right. You know, lurking in the jungle with almost supernatural powers (laughs) and just pure evil. And yet also primitive though right because oh yeah one of the scenes when they're on the boat they are shooting what are basically sticks yeah at the boat and he's like they're like they're not even arrows they're just sticks and so they're also shown wielding again these sort of primitive weapons and so it's like you ha- you're trying to do both and like yes this is this monstrous sort of monolithic ideology essentially is what you're fighting but they are also not as ad- advanced at, as as right. we are well this this is one of the narratives yeah. of Vietnam War is that America was the huge techno right. giant and they were fighting us with bows and arrows mm-hmm. and somehow winning right another side note on this and I have not read this book but the the book that won the Pulitzer Prize a couple of years ago The Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen who was a I think he grew up in the States, but I think he and his family left Vietnam around the fall of Saigon. So. Mm-hmm. But I have read that there's a subplot in that book in which his main character serves as the authenticity consultant <laughs> on a film shooting in the Philippines that is obviously basically Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. And that apparently the main character tries and fails to convince the director, who is just referred to as the auteur, to include the actual voices of Vietnamese people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sort of I'm sort of curious to go read that book now. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Okay, so what else? You you were not a fan of this movie, apparently. Again, I'm I'm sort of t- like I recognize that it's obviously an artistic achievement. Mm-hmm. I just did not enjoy it. I will never watch this film again. There wasn't anything about it that I felt I needed. There wasn't anything about it that I felt... You know, I think in films like these, about war, about any sort of time in history, we look to the artists to sort of tell the truth or to shed a light on something in a way that we hadn't maybe thought about it before. And and this just didn't do any of those things for me it didn't bring any sort of new understanding necessarily okay um all right so you you always accuse me of not putting up a good enough defense of these movies so i'm going to defend this one please do so for one thing this should have been if if coppola had not fallen so far behind on his schedule Mm -hmm. this would have been the first mainstream movie to deal with the vietnam war Mm -hmm. outside of for example, the John Wayne movie, The Green Berets, which was totally a propaganda film. Right. Pro-war, pro-America, 
propaganda film. Sure. This, though, Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter managed to beat it into theaters. This should have been the first take on the Vietnam War mm-hmm. uh, for, a major, for a major motion picture. Mm-hmm. And I think the reality, heightened reality, let us say, the depiction of war that this movie shows had never been seen before. Yeah, okay. I think earlier movies like MASH and Catch-22, for example, Mm -hmm. had sort of shown the absurdity of war and the absurdity of military life Mm -hmm. in kind of a black comedy sort of way. I think this is something beyond that. I think this did change America's conception of what war is, of what its own soldiers were like in this war. Mm-hmm. Um, and later films like Platoon and Full Metal Jacket did that even more. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I think it is important in that sense. And I don't love this movie. It's not a movie I'm going to sit down and watch over and over again. But what does impress me about it is I think there is a form follows function quality to this movie where it does have this sort of psychedelic. Yeah, it's surreal. Disturbing ways, yeah. surreality mm-hmm. that I think it works a spell on you that it just immerses you in that mm-hmm. very dark reality mm-hmm. um, in a way that is effective and powerful. Yeah. Obviously, I haven't been to any war. I don't know that this is what being in Vietnam feels like, but I can imagine that you get a little feeling of that from this movie. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an achievement. No, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I think it is an interesting portrayal of the interiority of the American soldier and the ways in which sort of policy and practice can manifest as psychosis. Mm. When it is sort of curdled by one the very real physical heat and physical environment and also a larger just dehumanization of folks of color which makes murder easier mm-hmm. and when where sort of i think mission becomes very vague like it's both very yes. clear and very vague at the same yes. time <laughs> So, no, I, I do think that that's interesting. And I take your point that at the time that it was released, and particularly if it had been released on time, that it was this sort of new narrative mm-hmm. around Vietnam. And so I guess, and I think this is something we come up against in this little journey of ours quite often, is like I'm sitting from a different place right. watching it. Right. Um, so I'm less interested in the soldier story than I am interested in the Vietnamese children who grew up with birth defects because of Agent Orange. Right. Or even the story of the soldier that comes home and has no job and has no resources and is also in his own way deformed by Agent Orange and deformed by the... is also dehumanized in a way because of what they've been charged to do. Okay, but I think we see that part of it in this movie, don't we? I mean, that's that's Kurtz's story, but I also think it's Willard's story. Mm-hmm. I mean, Willard, the the very first scenes in the movie, we see it's just a portrait of PTSD. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, he is severely fucked up. Yeah. No, I do think we see it. I just think, and it's not an either or, but it's just, I guess I'm, like, the whole narrative that he has at the beginning of, like, I went home with my wife and I couldn't talk to her until I said yes to the divorce. It's like, okay, well, let me see that movie. What's that movie of you being at home with your wife? That movie came out around the same time, too. It was called Coming Home. Okay, well, <laughs> missed Al that Ashby's one. Al <laughs> <Okay>. movie. <laughs> um, and then again, like I said, it, it, this sort of expectation of like, oh, this is Vietnam. It's like, well, this wasn't Vietnam, so if I'm going to see a movie about Vietnam, then show me what Vietnam looks like after all the Americans have gone. Mm-hmm. What does rebuilding a nation look like? And what does reclaiming an identity beyond the horrors that were enacted upon you look like? So, yeah, I guess it's a, a matter of, like, perspective. And so I'm just interested in a different perspective. Because... 
yes, this is a more challenging and sort of fractured version of the American hero, but it's still very much an American hero story. And Mm -hmm. I still think it's slightly romanticized in a way that I don't think this is an anti-war film. That's interesting because Coppola himself said the same thing just this past week. Because, I mean, the whole like, so yes, it is absolutely shining a light on the hypocrisy and the absurdity of war. I mean, that, that scene with, what was his name? Kilgore? Is that his name? (laughs) Yes, Robert Duvall. Where... He's specifically going to bomb a Vietnamese village because they have good surf. Yeah. And drops napalm on this this village. And Charlie don't surf. And, and as they're coming towards it, they start playing uh, Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries. Yeah. And so it's like, it's ludicrous. But at the same time, that's probably something they show cadets. It's like, this This is what fucking America looks like. And this is how we go in. Okay, and we ab- go in like... Absolutely. <laughs> that whole section is the most iconic yeah. portion of this movie. That's what you'll hear everyone quote. Mm-hmm. Is his... I love the know, smell of napalm love the in the morning. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. And the Charlie Don't Surf and all of that. Uh, Duvall was the only actor to get an Academy Award nomination <laughs> out of this. I think, again, just not that... I mean, it obviously wasn't a great acting performance, no. but I think just the the instant recognition that, okay, that's an iconic character yeah. that he just created. Yeah. But no, you're absolutely right that there are certainly as many people who watch that and feel gung-ho towards mm-hmm. it as there are people who are horrified by it. Yeah. But that's always true. We, like, sure. You can't control for the audience. No. I mean, this is, I think we talked about that with Scorsese's movies too, that it, you know, there are people who watch Goodfellas and are like, okay, that's the life. Yeah. I want to live like that. And that's not the intent. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, but no, you're, like I said, just this week, Coppola, they asked Coppola if it was an anti-war movie, and he said the exact same thing you just said. He said, well, I don't think it can be an anti-war movie because it's showing war mm. and because people are going to watch it and think that, oh, that's an awesome scene where the helicopters <laughs> go in and bomb that village. So, no, it's not an anti-war movie. He said, I don't think it's a pro-war movie, but no, he said, yeah. you know, an anti-war movie would be one that had no war in it at all. Mm. So, in- interesting Note about the production on this movie. The the U.S. Army refused to cooperate with this film because of Shocker. its message, yep. obviously. Mm-hmm. So the helicopters and all of the vehicles and everything were the Philippine military, rented from Ferdinand Marcos. Okay. And the problem with that was, a lot of problems with that, yep. including the amount of money that was mm-hmm. paid to Ferdinand Marcos to do this. But Ferdinand Marcos was also fighting a civil war at the time with... So mid-shoot, they kept having to suspend shooting because the helicopters had to go off and kill real people. So again, the the line between reality and fantasy here is pretty thin. So even in film, we're supporting dictators. That's awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they can get us what we need. Sure. All right. Well, maybe we should let's let's talk about Willard a little bit. Okay. So what what's your impression of Willard? He should have been discharged a very long time ago. I don't know. Willard is an interesting. I, I don't even know if I would call him interesting. I don't. I don't think he's supposed to be that interesting. <laughs> he's very much, and in fact, um, Coppola originally hired Harvey Keitel for that role, mm-hmm. and then he fired Keitel in part because he said Keitel had trouble just being an observer, mm-hmm. which is what he wanted the character to be. Mm-hmm. Keitel was apparently too dynamic in that role. And Sheen is not. Sheen is very quiet. Sheen is kind of fades into the background of a lot of scenes. 
He does. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Yeah, I don't know. So it was like that first scene where they pull him out of the hotel room where he's covered himself in his own blood and is mm-hmm. like fucking playing karate in his underwear and shit. Um, and they're just like, yeah, we're going to take you to this meeting. This is cool. Um, and then he goes to the meeting to meet and they give him the whole briefing on Kurtz and everything. I'm just like, you're sitting across from a man who has obviously lost his mind. And no one seems to like either you don't care that he's lost his mind and you're fine just sort of putting him into this really horrible situation and he's just mm-hmm. like expendable or you're stupid. Like he's obviously lost his mind. <laughs> so it was hard to believe that he would even just like he's not capable. He's not OK. 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 So a couple things on that. OK. <laughs> so on the, on the one level, this is the, you know, oh, the movie was the story. That scene in the hotel room was pretty much real what you were seeing mm-hmm. um it was largely improvised sheen was basically on the edge of a nervous breakdown he was totally drunk he'd been drinking too much he accidentally punched the mirror <laughs> and cut his hand they tried to yell cut coppola wanted to bring a doctor in and he said no no i'm gonna keep going so everything that happened that was him pretty much having a nervous breakdown okay. on screen all right and in fact a few months later he had a heart attack at mm-hmm. the age of 36 now, granted, he was drinking a lot and smoking too much, and this was an exhausting shoot. So there's that level of it. and that. But then the other thing, and I think this is going to come up a lot in this movie, is you talk about, well, he was crazy. Mm-hmm. I would say who in that environment is not. Isn't crazy. Sure, that's fair. And that's the thing. And, that's, and you ask the, it, the same question that comes up with morality, and mm-hmm. I think that's what makes this movie interesting, is that it's depicting that world mm-hmm. in which... Everybody is crazy. Yeah. The whole situation is crazy. There's no way to be but crazy Mm -hmm. in it. And everything is immoral. Like, there's no such thing as a noble war. Right, right. Um, He says that early in the movie. He says, accusing someone of murder here... It's like, it's like handing out at the Indy 500, speed, yeah. right, speeding tickets at the Indy 500. Mm-hmm. Like you're missing the point altogether. Yeah. And I remember that's the professor I had taught that class in college who was a army intelligence guy who had served in Vietnam. He basically said the same thing. You know, we talk about the My Lai massacre. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, yes, those people should have been prosecuted. What they did was horrible. But to pick that one incident out of everything that was happening mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. and then to pick those incidents out of the general atrocity that the entire war represented, yeah. you're really splitting hairs. Yeah. It's just sort of arbitrary yeah. selection of what you choose to focus on and what you don't. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he's crazy, but everybody in the movie's crazy. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And I just think it didn't help that I didn't enjoy the voiceover. It just seemed very... And I know the whole film is stylized and, mm-hmm. and, and hyper-realistic, but it was just hard to invest in him as a human when it didn't feel... It didn't feel authentic? No. Yeah. I agree with that. So, yeah, so that's how I felt about... Well, and he's, al- he's also a terrible, terrible person. Well, but again, it goes... He's a terrible person amongst a lot of terrible people. He is a trained murderer, so what do we expect from that type of person? Mm-hmm. And... To survive and or succeed in that space, you it demands you be what would what we would objectively call a terrible person. Um, like that scene when they come up on that boat that right. like what they think is a supply boat and potentially supplying weapons to the Vietnamese. So they board it to check it. Right, but it's basically a family. It's, it's just a family with farmers and mm-hmm. they're, they're like produce and shit on the boat. But, you know, a young girl makes a run for her puppy and they mistake it that she's trying to murder one of the soldiers or something. And so they, they shoot up the entire boat. Yeah. Um, but it turns out the, the girl is still alive and they're like, okay, well, we need to get her on the boat and take her to the hospital yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And Willard just shoots her. Yeah. And it's like, I told you to keep going. And so it's... That, like, is, that is the moment where we discover he might be worse yeah. than other people. Yeah. Because the other soldiers are the ones that shoot them mm-hmm. 
it's the kid played by Lawrence Fishburne, 14 year old Lawrence Fishburne, who lied about his age to work (laughs) on this movie, who opens fire originally and shoots them all. And up until this point, we have not seen Willard really have to make any decisions of all. We no. haven't. We don't have a moral read on him. And I think we sort of assume he's not a bad guy. Mm, I didn't, but okay. No? Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I think he's the protagonist, so I think we naturally, there's a sort of natural association that viewers tend to make that mm-hmm. it's like, okay, this guy is our hero, quote sure. unquote, even if he's complicated. Uh, but yeah, then the the woman is only wounded. She's not dead. All the other people are dead. And so the other people on the boat are like, okay, we need to take her to a hospital. And Willard's just like, no. Yeah. And he just shoots her dead. Yeah. Which is horrible. And the people on the boat are horrified because that's murder. a line they were not yeah. prepared to cross. But again, I think that's one of the things that's interesting about this is that line is so arbitrary yeah. in the first place. Like, you've just slaughtered this entire family for no reason. This one person happened to not quite be dead, so now you're going to do the moral thing right. and take her off? Like, it is a very arbitrary line. Yeah. And, it's, and I think that's part of what this movie does, is it kind of exposes or makes us think about these ridiculous rules that we have to convince ourselves that there's any such thing as a moral war mm-hmm. when there isn't. Right. And then I think those questions just build as we contemplate what Kurtz could be doing that is so much worse than mm-hmm. what everybody else in the movie that we see mm-hmm. is doing. If the army that's doing all of these terrible things thinks Kurtz is a monster, what the fuck can he be doing right. that's that's so much worse? Yeah. And I like Brando. <laughs> so Coppola offered this part to a lot of people. He needed a big name to get the financing for this movie. Everybody turned him down because nobody wanted to go off to the Philippines for four months, let alone the year and a half that they ended up being there. And he finally lured Brando in with what was then an unheard of deal, which was he was paying him a million dollars a week for three weeks of work. And... That was not a lot of time, and then Brando showed up late and unprepared to begin with, so basically he did not have a lot of time to work with Brando. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of like, and I I think this is a necessity, but I like how the information about Kurtz is kind of parceled out through the movie, Mm -hmm. so that we feel like Kurtz is in the movie much more than he actually is in the movie. Sure, yeah. He's actually in the movie, I don't know, like eight minutes or something. Like he's not, it's not a big role, but... That narration you don't like, but Sheen is reading his files and learning more about him and looking at pictures of him throughout the movie. So he feels like a much larger presence than he actually is in the film. Mm -hmm. And and so that's good and, for me, it was good and bad because I felt like it was building him up to be this... I was envisioning this sort of charismatic monster. <laughs> um, and then when we get to to Brando, I was a little bit disappointed. I was like, this? You, you, this is what you're following? And this is a, the great, you know, I, so this I just... fat, mumbling motherfucker. And it's not even, it wasn't even the weight. It was like, he could be fat, but it, he no, just also I, wasn't necessarily very charismatic. Like, to me, when I, when I think of someone who is able to build a following and build a following off of atrocity and like that requires a level of just charisma and i just didn't feel it with brando which is because brando is known for being a very charismatic performer and having this sort of he has a gravity around him 
Like it just, yeah. it's just what it is. Um, and I just didn't feel that at all in this. So it almost felt like a letdown that we had been going on this long journey for this dude. And I'm just like this. <laughs> like <laughs> So, I, so just... I, I mentioned his weight only because that was apparently a big issue when he showed up on set is that he was 300 pounds mm-hmm. and Coppola looked at him and was like, this guy's supposed to be the consummate soldier yeah. and you were grossly overweight. <laughs> and then apparently Coppola was like, okay, so I need to rewrite the script. We need to make it clear. You know, he's living like a god. He's living Mm -hmm. like a king. He's kind of gotten fat and lazy. But then he couldn't do that either because Brando was embarrassed about the weight and didn't want it shown Mm -hmm. on screen. So I was like, oh, what the hell are you supposed to do with that? So the solution was to not show him much. And then when you did show him, to show just his face with everything total blackness. I think it works. I think it's a clever workaround. Sure. But it was not what was intended, definitely. Yeah. So you agreed with uh, Gene Siskel's review of this movie. He said, The problem is the character played by Marlon Brando. Obese and photographed in shadows, Brando's character comes on like some kind of burlesque clown. What he has to say is mostly inaudible, and what is audible doesn't make any sense. That's a powerful letdown when you've been traveling upriver for two hours to meet the guy. Yeah. So it was just, it made the ending a little bit anticlimactic. And I think I was expecting some great, like... I don't know what I was expecting. It was, I don't know if it was like a meeting of the minds sort of thing where it's like, let me tell you why this war that you're engaged in is. So you were expecting like a confront, a not a intellectual just, confrontation. Not, I, I don't know what it is, but just like some sort of something like, and you get a little bit of that, like with his snippets of like little poetry and shit that he's reading. And he goes on the whole thing about like, <laughs> what right do you have to judge me given what you've yeah. seen, what you've done? Um, so you get a little bit of that, but I don't, I was just expecting more from it. And some just, kind of revelation, something some sort of... where I'm just like, oh, that's why people would follow you. And it's like, I don't know why anybody yeah. following you anywhere. I, I don't disagree with you. And again, I think it's a side note, but I don't know why anyone ever put up with Brando's bullshit. <laughs> Every movie he ever worked on, apparently he was the biggest pain in the ass. He wouldn't learn his lines. He showed up unprepared. He forced huge concessions. People paid him record-breaking amounts of money mm-hmm. to show up on set and ruin their movies as far as I can tell. (laughs) And I personally don't think he was that great. He's a good actor, obviously, but I don't think he was so much better than anyone else would have been. So I agree with you. I think there's a lot of unsatisfying ramblings coming from him at the end. I think the story he tells about the inoculation. that That's what I was just going to say. Is is I think there are a couple of things yeah. that he says that matter, and yes. I think that's one of them. Yes. Where he says they went into a village to inoculate all the children against polio. Mm-hmm. And then after they left, someone came out running out crying, and they went back and found that they had chopped all the arms off the, the, arms, the inoculated yeah. arms off every single child in that village. And there was just a pile of little arms, he says. Like, that was pretty horrifying. Very horrifying. But very on point. Yes. Because you talk about, it's it's not his charisma, it's his willingness to fight the war that way, Mm -hmm. the way the Viet Cong were fighting the war. Mm -hmm. And this is, and I don't, I remember so little of, it was a really good class I took in college on the war, and I remember so little of it. One thing I do remember coming away with is the understanding that we simply did not understand that culture enough to be interfering there at all, let alone to be fighting a war there over 10 years. And the chief thing we didn't understand is their level of commitment, which we were never going to match. 
there was a term Doutron, which is it's one of those untranslatable terms. Mm-hmm. The way my professor translated it is total war. Mm. And it meant they were fucking in it for the long run. Yeah. And I think Willard says something like that in the movie. He says their only way out is Oh yeah, two death, ways out. Victory or death. Victory or death, yeah. Right. And that's what it is, is that they're not there for a tour and right. then they get to go home. Right. And it's not just the soldiers, it's the entire society is fighting this war. Yeah. And we never understood that and we certainly could never match that commitment. And I think that's what Kurtz is supposed to be, is the guy who realizes that and is like, I'm going to have the will that they are showing Mm -hmm. to win this war. Mm Mm-hmm. But I also agree with you, it doesn't seem to amount to much besides cutting off some heads. Yeah, he doesn't seem to And hanging some bodies and... Which, yeah, it's just, yeah. I mean, I think it's only powerful in so much as it reveals the lie of the whole thing. Of just like, well, why was the army so hell-bent on getting him back and getting him under control? Because he, he was doing what everybody else was doing. He was just doing it outside of the bounds of, of what we thought, of what we quote-unquote said was decent. Um, right, he was doing it just over those right. arbitrary lines that we had drawn for right. ourselves. And I think Willard, I mean, Willard kills him in mm-hmm. the end. Which is actually a good scene in that it's sort it, of... It really is a fantastic scene. with the sacrifice of the, of the cow, yeah. and it's a really powerful scene. And it's kind of, you know, it's very much got this kind of mythopoetic thing going on, thing, where yeah. he comes out and all the people bow down to him, mm-hmm. so he's like the new king. The water buffalo was real, by the way. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) That was controversial. (laughs) They had seen that tribe that they hired to play Kurtz's army doing this ritual Mm -hmm. where they hack this water buffalo to death with machetes. And that gave Coppola the idea for how to end the movie. And so they recreated that. Which, again, is one of those things that it's like, okay, that's wrong, but is it? Because they were doing it anyway. It's... Again, it's one of those sort of arbitrary lines where we've right. said, okay, that's not cool. Where does it tip over to do to for a movie? Yeah. But why? Because the tribe was doing it anyway. Right. But anyway, what I was going to say is, I think that scene on the boat where Willard shoots that woman is showing us that he and Kurtz are very much the same. Mm-hmm. Because again, that's Willard's willingness to just do what needs to be done. Do what needs to be done for the mission. Fuck morality fuck the rules, Mm -hmm. you know, etc. I think one of the last things we hear Kurt say, he's reading into his tape recorder, and he's saying something about how the military doesn't let... They can't paint fuck on the helicopters. They can't paint the word fuck on their helicopters because it's obscene. Mm -hmm. It's okay to bomb women and children, that's okay, but don't paint the word fuck on your helicopter because that's obscene. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is the whole hypocrisy of war and what this movie's about, in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, so what haven't we talked about? We haven't talked about... There's a lot of just sort of set pieces mm-hmm. through this. It's got a very, as many people have pointed out, kind of like the Odyssey. It's like these little encounters mm-hmm. along the journey. You know, the Playboy bunnies are kind of like the sirens and stuff like that. These little encounters that they have going on this journey into the Heart of Darkness. Yeah, I mean, those little sort of interstitials are some of the more interesting pieces of the film for me. Even um, when he and... What's the one with the mustache? Chef. Yes. When uh, Chef is like, I need to go find mangoes for some, like, he just needed mangoes. And so he's like, I'm going into the forest to find mangoes. And so he and Willard go. And it's shot really cool because the they're like dwarfed. I, lo- I love it's that. It's such a huge. They look the trees like children. Are ridiculously big. Yeah. And and then they hear this rustle, 
thinking it's Vietnamese and it's actually a fucking tiger. <laughs> and so that scene was just a great recognition of man's sort of smallness and vulnerability to mm-hmm. just nature. Like it's not even yeah. the uh, your, your quote unquote enemy. It is nature that can very easily kill you. Right. And I think that's another one of the narratives about that yeah. war is that it that you were fighting the jungle as much right. as you were fighting anything. Yeah. And then as you said, the the set piece when they come up on the USO tour and there are all these lights and it's just it looks like Disneyland. It's so ridiculous. Yeah. And the Playboy bunnies sort of helicopter in and they're and like, they've got those very phallic giant shell yeah, props in yeah. the back. You it's, know what I'm talking really about? It's really ridiculous, like, yeah. Big, yeah. Yeah. And then the the bunnies are like humping AK-47. Mm-hmm, yes. And it's a, it's a very weird, surreal scene happening in the middle of all... Like, I can't even imagine having experienced that. Like, you're murdering babies and then you're coming and looking at women shake their tits in your face. It's, that's just a very... That's a mind fuck, and I imagine yeah. it was a huge mind fuck for people. But then my favorite... Wait, hold oh, on. Let me say on that. So... There was much more to the bunny storyline, and that's what Coppola put back in the Redux okay. version. I don't know if it's in the new Final Cut version that he just released. I hope not, because I think he was smart to take it out the first time. Mm-hmm. I don't think it works. But basically, they encounter the bunnies again further down the river. Their helicopter has landed because it was out of fuel or something. Mm-hmm. And they trade a couple of barrels of fuel to the bunnies for a couple hours of sex with the bunnies. Yeah, it's really ugly and really unpleasant and just, if nothing else, totally manufactured TNA stuck in the middle of this movie. It's so bad. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, we don't need that. No. So that, and then I think the other one is there's scenes where they came across a French plantation of all these French people who were still living. Because, you know, France was Mm -hmm. there before America Mm -hmm. was, and they, the French basically had the same experience in Vietnam that we had just before we got there. Um, So there are all these French people that are still living there and still trying to consider this their home and that kind of thing. That was the other, those are the two segments that were cut from the original movie and put back for the later movie. Mm -hmm. But anyway, sorry. No. Um, You were going to say your favorite um, I think one of the more interesting set pieces for me was when they come to that final bridge before they enter into Cambodia. Oh, yes. They say the last, sort the of last, last occupied yeah. bridge. Right. And again, there's sort of these lights that seem really just out of place and weirdly festive. Mm-hmm. given uh, the environment. Yeah, it's almost like these little fairgrounds yeah, that it's they a, come it's across a, it's weird. in the middle of nowhere. And then the music that's playing is sort of reminiscent of almost like uh, carnival music, that like borderline mm-hmm. creepy clown music. <laughs> and it's just chaos there. They're trying to find the commanding officer, and he's going from sort of bunker to bunker to bunker trying to figure out where the commanding officer is, and it's just coming upon deeply confused soldiers who are just shooting because that's what they're. That's all they know how to do. Right. They're shooting into the jungle yeah. where there may or may not be anything, anything to shoot at. To be we kind of at. get the impression that there isn't, that they're just... But we come across this group of three black soldiers, and two of them are manning this like machine gun, and again, just sh- sort of shooting out into the void and the black soldiers are calling the Vietnamese the Mm N-word. And so, again, you get this weird dynamic of who is the oppressor and who is, you know. And um, Willard asks, you know, who's your commanding officer? And one of them turns around and is like, I thought you were. Like, aren't you the commanding (laughs) officer? And and then you get the third black guy come in and just creepily serene 
and obviously has just become a machine of death yeah. because he just sort of loads up and he's sh- totally silent. He's got yeah. a grenade launcher and it's decorated and like he's wearing like bones around his neck. It's a it's a it's a very odd sort of character. And then he just shoots one shot and the sort of remaining voice of the Vietnamese that we were hearing mm-hmm. just sort of disappears into the night. So it's just it's just an odd and that was sort of the most we had seen of black soldiers mm-hmm. in the film other than the two that were on the boat with Willard. And just, again, sort of knowing what we know now of the war, which is that black soldiers were sort of disproportionately represented among the soldiers, experienced some serious segregation while over in Vietnam, Mm -hmm. and were also some of the most vocal sort of um, dissenters while they were, like... And they had higher death rates because they were sent out on more dangerous missions. Yeah. So it's just a... It was interesting to have that moment with them in a film that hadn't really touched on that really at all. Yeah. Um, and they are, they're at the absolute limit. The absolute end. Because they say that's the last right. occupied yeah. outpost on the river. Right. So that's the border mm-hmm. between, quote unquote, I don't even know what to call it, not yeah. civilization. Right. But mm-hmm. beyond that is the wild, right. is chaos, right. is Kurtz's mm-hmm. land. And they also say something about they build that bridge every night. Yeah. The Vietnamese keep blowing it up and the Americans keep just rebuilding right. it so that the brass can claim that it's, that it's there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And again, I think just as a metaphor for that entire war, mm-hmm. that's kind of what we're talking about. We haven't talked about the boat much or the people on the boat at mm-hmm. all. Anything to say about them? Besides the fact that the two black guys are the first people to die, just like a horror movie. <laughs> that was. Well, I will say that Lawrence Fishburne's death was heartbreaking. Yeah. Because he's playing this tape that he just got from his mom in the mail. Mm-hmm. And you're overhearing her voice say, you know, stay out of the way of the bullets. We want you to come home safe. You know, we want you to have grandchildren and all this other stuff. And then he's shot to death and he dies. And it, it's actually a really, yeah, no, that's really sad. powerful moment and very sad. And then the captain is shot with a not-stick arrow. um, A spear. An actual spear. But what I do love is then he tries to take Willard out with him. He's shot with the spear, and it's coming through his chest, and then he's trying to bring Willard down on the spear so that he can kill (laughs) him. So I I respect that. Oh, that's that's actually the other thing I was going to say about that that moment at the the final outpost, Mm -hmm. because that is also the turning point where the captain of the boat, the chief of the boat, mm-hmm. says basically, okay, this is it. we're going yeah. back. We, we can leave you here, but we're not going any further than yeah. this. And then Willard says, fuck you. You're coming. Yeah. You're taking me upriver. Yeah. And everybody's alive up until that point. And then Willard makes them go further. And then almost they immediately they start being killed off. Yeah. Yeah. And then their chef, who is just a paranoid, twitchy mess the whole time and really should not be in Vietnam. <laughs> what, did, what did he say after the tiger? Don't says, get off the boat. Don't get off the boat. Never get off boat. the boat. Never get off the boat. Um, and he actually survives for longer than I think he would. Yep. And it, it's actually um, Kurtz that ends up beheading him. Yes, he drops Chef's head into yeah. Willard's lap. And then the other is, I don't remember his name, but the surfer. Lance, the surfer. Lance, the mm-hmm. surfer who drops acid while it's sure, like, sure, that's a smart thing to do. Yeah. And is sort of just out of it the whole time, which may not be a bad idea, like a bad way to go mm-hmm. through war. Just like, just check the fuck out. And um, because he actually lives, which is surprising. He d- he kind of goes native when he, he gets does. to Kurtz's yeah, he, camp. That's home. And Willard has to sort of pull him yeah. back to the boat to get him back on the boat after he's killed. Which Kurtz. is, it's uh, apparently they ended up cutting all of his lines and everything, but 
Scott Glenn is in this movie, and he plays the last guy sent to kill Kurtz. Mm -hmm. Colby, they say his name is. And apparently what happened to Colby was Colby got there and instead of killing Kurtz, he joined Kurtz. Right. He he went native too. Yeah. And we see him there briefly. But that's Lance very quickly seems to mm-hmm. kind of join in with this little tribe there and Willard after killing Kurtz just has to pull him out. Yeah. And like, no, you're you're coming with me. I'm yeah. not leaving you here. I'm talking about Dennis Hopper. This is our second Dennis Hopper movie in two weeks. I think I mean, that's enough Dennis Hopper movies yeah. for well, a little while, Dennis you Hopper think? Dennis Hopper is always Dennis Hopper. Like he's the same <laughs> Same energy, same just manic person every time. So we've talked about Kurtz's final words, the famous oh, the horror, the horror, horror. which is from Heart of Darkness. That's mm-hmm. what's the horror? I don't know. War, humanity, <laughs> all of it. So it sounds to me like you don't one hundred percent think this was all worth it. Uh, not for me, no. But I'm. Glad other people really love it. <laughs> but no, I mean, this is not something that I am going to watch again. It's not something that I necessarily feel like showed me something that I needed to see. Okay. And I sort of hate it because, and this is more about my terrible brain and not any fault of the filmmaker or the actors involved, but since yesterday I've had Kill the Wabbit. Kill the wabbit, <laughs> kill in my fucking head, and it will not go away. So, I think that's a feature, not a bug. It is a fucking bug, and I need it to stop running in my head. But that's all. It's a kill the wabbit, <laughs> which again just shows that my lack of I culture. Probably not intended. Than anything else, obviously not intended. But that's, well, no, Bugs Bunny is that's the height of culture. No, it really, it really is it. It's fucking Wagner. If I have to save, I, if I have to save one work you save bugs bunny i'm gonna save the bugs bunny cartoon oh dude not gonna save apocalypse now oh well oh well yeah that's the choice and yeah Yeah. then yeah i thought you meant like out of all art ever oh no 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 okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's our show we want to thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us again next week Nakia, we have done a couple of bummer <laughs> movies in a row. Mm-hmm. I think we and our audience are probably in the mood for something lighter next time. What do you think? Sure. Okay. So what I did is I went and looked at our list and I picked what is to me the funniest movie left on our list. We are going to watch 1981's Arthur. The one drunk? of my favorite movies. Okay. Sure. Which means it's not going to be funny. But all right. Well, uh, what do you mean by that? Because you and I don't find the same things funny. There's a little overlap. I think there's a few things we agree on. Okay. Not very many. Okay. He's the rich drunk, right? Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I haven't watched it in many years, but I, I feel certain that... That it holds up. ...drunk yeah. shtick has mm-hmm. aged very well. I highly doubt it. I think he's driving drunk throughout the movie. I think there's a lot of stuff that... I, I'm sure it's all held up very well uh-huh. decades later. I'm sure it has in the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, follow us on Twitter at freerangecritic, or send an email to michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. In any of those places, we encourage you to leave a comment on the show or suggest a film that Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means subjecting your partner to movies they really, really don't want to watch. 